Welcome back to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. If you're new here, uh, the main thing that you need to know going into this show is just that everything we do at this show is based on our three guiding principles, peace, property rights, and free markets. If you want to know where we stand on anything, it always comes back to those three principles. It's really easy to be emotional and it's really easy just to fly by the seat of your pants and just go completely by feel on any particular issue. Instead, on this podcast, we strive to be strong and principled, and what that allows us to do is it allows us to be fair in everything we do and not just to have a knee-jerk reaction in everything. I'm so glad you're here listening with me. We are on episode six. Believe it or not, the average podcast only lasts seven episodes, so we are on the cusp of becoming average, I suppose, here, but you know that that's not true. You know Uh, If you've listened to this show before, we strive to be better than anything that's out there. We strive to be better than just your political talking points and the narratives and the headlines. We look to go past those things. Uh, Got a little disclaimer for you on this episode. Everything in this podcast, as well as my other episodes, is for education and entertainment purposes only. I speak only for myself. Nothing in this podcast reflects the opinions of my employer or any of my friends or any of my family members. I'm not a lawyer or a medical professional, so don't take any of this as legal or medical advice. Also, this particular episode will contain a little bit of subject matter uh, that's a little bit more mature than usual, and I'd probably give this kind of a PG to PG-13 type rating. I just wanted to throw that out there. Usually try to be pretty family friendly. I know some of you listen with your children or perhaps your elderly grandmother or your priest, but for this episode, just a couple of places where maybe uh, you might want to pop the headphones in instead and just listen to this one alone because there are some difficult subjects that we're going to talk about. First off, the title segment. I did not want to do this. I never wanted to do this. When I started building this podcast, I, I had a certain set of standards that I wanted to hold myself to. And in our modern world with liberal screeching and arrogant conservative pearl clutching, I always strive to be the adult in the room. I want to be the calm voice coming from a place of reason. And just as the intro says, I want this podcast to be a safe space where those of us who haven't lost our damn minds could talk about politics like fair, reasonable people. I'm never going to lie to you. I have my opinions and my biases, and I've never tried to cover any of that up. But I never wanted this podcast to be a place where we shriek over the headlines or we focus on the craziest lunatics either side has to offer. Unfortunately, something happened last week that brought the most infuriating headlines to one of the most unappealing characters. And like I said, I don't want to be associated with those people. I don't want to indulge in clickbait. And I've made it a point to try to be the bigger person and try to avoid those things. But this time, I really feel like they're making me do it. And I just can't bring myself to pass it up. Now, I'm no fan of Alex Jones. In fact, I find the whole InfoWars thing to be pretty childish and lowbrow. 
And you got to remember, this is coming from the guy who quoted the love guru on my episode about abortion. The whole hair on fire conspiracy theory thing, it just doesn't do it for me. I'm, I'm not interested in it at all. But I get that a lot of people do find him very entertaining. And let's be fair and admit that most of these people, they just watch him because they like to laugh at him. They think that he's entertaining. They, they like the character of the guy who is, you know, screaming about conspiracy theories all the time. They're not getting their news and their information from this person. But just as we mentioned on the last episode, when we talked about the social media bans, Alex Jones serves as the media's poster child for the uneducated right-wing Trump voter. Uh, you know, some guy yelling on my TV thinks chemicals in the water are turning frogs gay, and that's why I won't vote for Hillary Clinton, the world's most wholesome, charming, honest presidential candidate of all time. Sure, that story checks out with me. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the same. But Alex Jones, he's already facing all kinds of legal trouble because he claimed that the Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax and that it never happened and nobody died, and a bunch of parents went out and got together and sued him. Uh, parents of the dead kids, I, sh- I guess I should say. He, he just lost one case, and I think that was in Texas, coming out of Texas. And there are more in process. There's at least one more. I think there are a few going on. But remember, the First Amendment, it doesn't necessarily protect you from the consequences of acting like an idiot. You're free to say whatever you want, but if, if it's a lie, if it's defaming somebody or something like that, they're more than welcome to come after you for what you've said. And then, to top it off, on top of everything else he's dealing with, all of these social media companies just happen to deplatform him at the same time to try to take away all of his money and all of his income from him. And if you want, if you didn't listen to the last episode, jump back to that episode and listen, and, and I'll explain why that really happened. It's not just simply because they didn't like him or because he was scary, but there is a method to this madness, and there is definitely a plan and a strategy that they have with the way that they're dealing with these things. Um, Normally, I would still be inclined to say, hey, if you're going to brand yourself as the most controversial, edgiest, most outrageous person on the air, don't be surprised when that shtick gets old and everybody turns on you. But when it comes to the headlines that were run about him last week, I think the corporate media really crossed a nasty line. And that's, that's saying a lot even for them. Let's look at these. BuzzFeed. Alex Jones sent emails containing child porn to Sandy Hook's victims' lawyers. USA Today, Alex Jones sent child pornography to Sandy Hook's victims' lawyer. Court documents allege. New York Times, Alex Jones' legal team is said to have sent child porn in Sandy Hook hoax case. CNBC, InfoWars host Alex Jones accused of threatening Sandy Hook lawyers after child porn is found in his electronic files. Court document says. They go on and on and on, and all of them say pretty much the same thing. And along with the articles came the comments on social media. These were from, uh, I think, the Wall Street Journal's post on it. Uh, Lock this monster up for the love of God. Another fine example of the Family Values Party. Can't wait to see how this guy fares in prison. At the first glance, I can see why some people might find this pretty shocking and disgusting. But right away, to me, it just seemed incomplete. Why, why were there, where are the rest of the details here? Something's not right. Why would somebody who makes their living on the internet be dumb enough to get caught up in a crime where you leave a digital paper trail wherever you go? 
And even if you were involved in something so evil and so illegal, why on earth would you send a bunch of it to a bunch of lawyers? But, of course, Alex Jones is the the left's kind of boogeyman, and the liberal media jumped all over it. And by the time the first headline gets out, even the more conservative outlets aren't going to be brave enough to try and set the record straight because you don't want to be the person who defended a child porn peddler. But I had to do a little bit more digging. What really happened here? Well, this other group of parents is suing his company InfoWars for spreading lies about the Sandy Hook attacks, and InfoWars was required to turn over all of their pertinent emails uh, from the time of the allegations, turn those over to the parents' lawyers. In an effort to turn everything over as quickly as possible, InfoWars just uploaded all of their emails from this period to a court database. They've got some kind of cloud, shared drive type thing, you know, so that you're preparing for the case and everybody's got the evidence in the same place so that you're all working from the same evidence. In these emails, someone from an outside email address had sent images of child pornography to InfoWars. These emails had been received by the account, so that means, you know, they were downloaded to the account servers, but they had not been opened or forwarded or anything of that nature. So I'm guessing they're just sitting in a spam folder somewhere with a million other, you know, ads and coupons and all the other junk that you get, and nobody even knew it was there. But when the plaintiff's lawyers saw the first image, they immediately notified of the F- notified the FBI and turned everything over to the proper authorities, as they should, as, as any of us probably would. They filed a complaint with the judge over that case and said that if InfoWars had done any due diligence whatsoever to only send the correct emails, this wouldn't have happened. A court case is a competition between each group's lawyers, and they're going to take any chance they can get to take a shot at one another. So I think at the same time, if InfoWars had been going through all of their emails before sending them over, the plaintiff's lawyers probably would have been complaining that they were taking too long and that they were were dragging their feet. So this is one of those situations where you, you probably can't win either way, but um, at this point in time, the plaintiff's lawyers are cooperating, InfoWars is cooperating, and Alex Jones is offering a million-dollar reward to catch whoever sent the garbage to his company, and it doesn't look like anybody involved here is really suspected of passing around child pornography or anything like that. I would imagine this kind of thing probably happens more often than you think. If, if you have a very public email address because you are a very well-known company, I'm sure people send all kinds of crap your way. You know, malware and viruses and spam and all different kinds of porn, whatever. Um, that's probably pretty run-of-the-mill because people are immature and dumb and they like to do those sorts of things. But, as we see when we take a couple steps further, it didn't have anything to do with Alex Jones or anybody at InfoWars or anything like that, but this thing was simply discovered, and everybody sent it up to FBI like they were supposed to, and they've been cooperative because it seems that everyone here is completely outside of this and finds this just as disgusting as you and I do. Alex Jones did say in a video clip after this happened that he was being framed by the plaintiff's lawyers and that he was going to put their heads on a pike, and uh, he said, I think he said, I'm going to kill 
And then he he dropped off right there, and he caught himself before saying anything that was going to get him in bigger trouble. But I think he's looking at a contempt of court issue for that. Now, that, it is what it is. But a crazy man yelling crazy things is a very different story than somebody intentionally sending child porn to the parents of a bunch of dead children. I'm going to be honest with you here. I didn't want to cover this. I didn't want to talk about this. I don't like to associate myself with people like Alex Jones, and I definitely don't want to take up for somebody like that. The same thing goes for Donald Trump. But the corporate media is so set on creating villains and so set on peddling lies, and they know that the first headline is always the one that sticks. They'll put Alex Jones sends child porn on the front page and get everybody fired up, and then three days later, they'll clarify it back on page 12 where they know that most people are never going to see it. And when people tell you that when you're meeting other people and you're going to job interviews or you're going on a date or anything like that, people say, you know, first impressions matter. And that's absolutely true. A lot of times a first impression can set the tone for you uh, for your entire relationship with somebody moving forward, whether that's a work relationship or a dating relationship or uh, just your relationship with your your neighbor that lives next door, any of that stuff. One of the things Scott Adams actually says is that if you meet somebody new for the first time, a lot of times it's good for you to talk to them, ask them if they've gone on a vacation lately or you know, ask them how their Christmas break was or whatever time of the year, focus on what are often the best things about that time of year. And when they tell you, oh yeah, I just got back from vacation, you know, we went to the beach and it was sunny and it was warm and we had a great time and everybody played and we ate good food and we had a really great time. What that does is it brings back those feelings of, you know, warmth and fun and fulfillment And because they're meeting you for the first time, it attaches those feelings to you and it makes them feel warm and fulfilled and joyful when they're around you as well. And that can cause them just to like you more subconsciously. And the same thing happens when the media runs these types of headlines. When they want to introduce you to somebody or they want to get you to think about somebody a certain way, they will push these big half-truth or often full lie headlines And then know that they can kind of do their journalistic duty by correcting it a little bit later on. But they push the lies out big and bold and right out front. And then they'll run the corrections later on in the background because they know nobody's going to pay attention to that. And even if you do hear it, you've already connected these gross feelings of of child abuse. You've already connected them to Alex Jones when you heard that. So you already get these feelings about him. And even when you find out that it wasn't really true, a lot of times... The fact that it wasn't even very true doesn't even stay in your brain necessarily. You still, every time you see this guy or hear something about him, you're going to think, oh, this is a nasty, gross person who does nasty, gross, disgusting things. And Michael Malice brings up the quote all of the time. Ayn Rand said, mistakes of this size are never made innocently. And again, I didn't want to do this. I I didn't want to dedicate the valuable time of one of my shows to defending somebody like Alex Jones. So please, CNN, New York Times, Fox News, if you are listening to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, I'm begging you to stop making me do this. Stop making me defend terrible people. 
Please stop pulling things out of context and telling flat out lies when really the truth is often a perfectly good reason to hate these people anyway. All right, I got a story here that I wanted to talk about in the last episode, but there were other things that kind of bumped it back out of the way, but I wanted to make sure that we still covered it. If you remember, during the Parkland school shooting last year, I think it was in last February, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it says here, February, 17 kids were killed. There were uh, two police officers in particular who were on the scene and did not help. And one was uh, a sheriff's deputy who was outside of the school building, and he ran back and he hid behind his car and waited for more officers to arrive before he did anything, and I, I don't think that any of them ever actually ran into the school. And there was also a school resource officer, and he was employed by the sheriff's department as well, and he was in the school at the time. And when the shooting began, he ran back in his office and locked the door and hid during this shooting. And again, he's a. it says his title was a school resource officer, but you need to understand he was an armed law enforcement officer. He was not just the rent-a-cop, uh, that walks around with a flashlight and a big keychain. He was armed. He had a gun. He could have returned fire, but he didn't. So a lot of people obviously were pretty disgusted with the actions of these two guys. Although, let's admit it, you don't know what you would do in a situation like that. We would all love to think that we would run in there guns blazing and that we would tackle the gunmen and we would save the children and we'd save the day and everything would be fine and dandy. But sometimes when stuff goes down, we freeze or... We run before even thinking about it because fight or flight is a, is a crazy thing and sometimes you can't always control it. But we really like to think that when you have taken a job where you, you, you swear an oath that you're going to uphold the law and you're going to take care of people and you're going to do the right thing, although they're not always trained as, as well as we think, law enforcement officers do receive some training of how to use their weapons and how to, how to try to counter an attacker and those kind of things. And so for this guy to just freak out and run and go lock the door and hide in his office and probably sit under his desk while all these kids are getting mowed down by a, a shooter, it's fair for us to feel pretty upset about that. And it's fair for us to, to think that this guy is, was a coward. You know, he deserves some of that criticism. So as you may have seen uh, recently, this article is from early June of this year, 2019, there were some articles floating around that he was this school resource officer. His name is Scott Peterson. I think there was a Scott Peterson that killed his wife or something like that in the news a little while ago, but this is, this is a different guy. This is the school resource officer. Um, he was being charged with neglect of a child, culpable negligence, and perjury. So they were going after him for not doing his job and not going in here and trying to stop this shooter and instead going and hiding. And that was met with a lot of, it was met with a lot of applause. You know, I saw on Facebook, you know, got a lot of the heart reactions and that kind of thing that people, people were glad to see that this guy was going to face some kind of justice for his lack of, of courage and for his lack of action. But just like with this Alex Jones thing, something there didn't quite sound right to me because normally this sort of thing wouldn't happen. So I started digging around in this one a little bit too, and I found this article, and it's from ABC News. It's from a big news site, but they just didn't push the headline because, again, everybody likes the, the, the feel-good story that we're going to take it to this guy and make him pay for being a coward. 
But this article headline says, Decision to charge Parkland School Resource Officer Scott Peterson for inaction is likely unprecedented, say the experts. Again, he was charged with neglect of a child, culpable negligence, and perjury. And I'm assuming there were multiple counts of each of those because 17 kids died. There were hundreds of kids in the school. I'm not sure how many counts they tried to hit him with, but I'm sure they had the opportunity to do it with plenty just because there were so many people. We got a law expert from a law professor from Loyola, and she says, I can't think of a case where someone has been charged with not going into harm's way. Basically, they're charging him with being a coward. So what they're actually doing here, there is no real way to charge a police officer for not going into harm's way to rescue somebody. These charges, these these culpable negligence and neglect of a child charges are really directed at people who either have custody of children or who it is their job to take care of children. So this would be your daycare workers, uh, obviously parents, probably foster parents. Those kind of people are the ones who could be charged with this sort of negligence for not taking care of children. However, the argument that they're they're trying to put forth to bring these charges up is that Scott Peterson was essentially in custody of all however many hundred students there were at this large high school and that they were under his watch and by not fighting the shooter, he let them die and he was being negligent in that way. And when you put it that way, it makes it a lot easier to look at it and say, well... They weren't in his custody. You know, he wasn't being paid to be a babysitter. He was being paid to protect the school in general and to help out in certain situations and and help keep the peace and that kind of thing. But he was not individually responsible for any of those students. Uh, You could make the same argument in that case that, you know, their teachers are responsible for them and the principal is responsible for them and, and maybe even the school board is responsible for them. So, the case falls apart pretty quickly, and you find out that it's just one of those things where uh, this prosecutor is trying to score brownie points and make sure that everybody in his area is proud of him, and they're going to vote for him when he's up for re-election. But this doesn't have a leg to stand on in court at all because he's not required to put himself in harm's way. You can't really—it's uh, much more difficult to charge anyone with a negative. You know, it's, it's hard to go after somebody for not doing something. It's a whole lot easier— you know, if you break somebody's property or even if a police officer actually goes overboard and, and beats somebody up or does something to hurt someone or to, to damage property or um, falsify evidence or whatever, all of those are, are positive actions, something that you actually do. But to try to get him on a negative where he didn't do something is much more difficult. And if you remember on the Alabama abortion episode, we talked about how the Supreme Court sets precedence, and that's not really the way that things were supposed to work. It was never the way that our founders intended the courts to work, but hey, it's 2019, and that's the world that we live in. So we're actually going to jump back to a case called Warren versus District of Columbia, and this ruling, I'm sorry, this opinion we learned that in episode four as well, make sure you check that out, was issued in 1981. And it was centered around two different cases where people sued the Washington, D.C., the Metropolitan Police Department, for inaction of the police in certain situations. So the first one, uh, this one is a little bit more mild. 
in April 30th, 1978, at approximately 11.30 p.m., uh, a guy who, it just says on, on the Wikipedia article that I'm reading here, it just says his last name was Nickel. Mr. Nickel stopped his car for a red light at the intersection of Missouri and 16th. Unknown occupants in a vehicle directly behind him struck his car in the rear several times and then proceeded to beat him in his face and head, breaking his jaw. Somebody called the cops. A police officer arrived at the scene, and in response to the officer's direction, the guy who was in the passenger seat, the guy who was in Mr. Nichols' car with him while he was getting beat, he kept trying to tell the police officer what the guys looked like and what happened and try to give them a description of the guys and of the vehicle so that they would know who to go after. And the officer refused to take that information. And uh, the way I understand it was that he kept trying to talk to the cop and the cop just told him to shut up, that I'm not talking to you right now and I don't want to hear it. And so because the police officer wouldn't listen to the description of these people and the description of the events, there wasn't enough in the police report for Mr. Nickel to press any legal action against those assailants. So this guy, you know, he's beat up, he's got a broken jaw. Obviously you want to, you want to sue those people. Sometimes uh, you definitely would hope that they're going to see some kind of jail time or something like that for assaulting you. And instead this police officer flat out didn't care, just ignored it. And now this guy can't even sue them to get his medical bills paid. So he brought a negligence action against the officer and uh, the Metropolitan Police Department and the District of Columbia. That was the first one, and that one was actually uh, the more mild one in this case. And the other one is another one of these sections where, uh, as I said in the beginning of the show, there are some uh, nasty details here. And if you're listening to this in more of a public place or around young people or anything like that, you may just want to, uh, to skip this part. That was the first part in the Warren versus District of Columbia case. The other one that's tied to it, you'll see, is Warren, Taliaferro, and Douglas. There is um, a house or an apartment. I-, I think it's kind of a house, basically. And there are three floors on this house. And Carolyn Warren and Joan Taliaferro lived in the top floor. And they shared a room on the third floor of this house. Beneath them, on the second floor, was Miriam Douglas, who lived there with her four-year-old daughter. So, in the early morning hours of Sunday, March 16, 1975, everybody's asleep, and the women were awakened by the sound of the back door being broken down. There were two men who kicked it down and came in, and they went upstairs to the second floor, the first room they found, where Miriam Douglas and... They went in there with her, and they began to rape her. The women on the third floor could hear this, so they called 911, and they told the dispatcher that the house was being burglarized, and they requested immediate assistance. The department employee told her to remain quiet and assured her that police assistance would be dispatched properly, or promptly. Um, That call was received at 6.23 a.m., and they recorded it as a burglary in process. Three whole minutes later, at 6.26, a call was dispatched to officers on the street as a Code 2 assignment. Although, calls of a crime in progress should be given priority and designated as Code 1. So, Code 2 means, basically, you know, don't rush as much. It's not as big of a deal when it should have been a Code 1, that these people need help right now. Four police cruisers were responded to the broadcast. 
three of them went to the the women's address, and another one went to address uh, another address to investigate a possible suspect. So Warren and Talaferro, the two women on the upper floor, they crawled out their window onto an adjoining roof and waited for the police to arrive. While they were there, they saw one policeman drive through the alley behind their house, and he didn't stop, he didn't lean out the window, he didn't get out of the car to check the back door. He just slowly drove by and went on around to the front of the house. I mean, for crying out loud, they said that the guy broke down the back door. You would think the police officer would have at least gotten out and checked the back door. But no, uh, a second officer apparently knocked on the door in the front of the residence, but they left when they received no answer. The three officers departed the scene at 6.33, five minutes after they arrived. Warren and Tally Farrow crawled back inside their room, and again, they heard Miriam Douglas's continuing screams from the second floor. And again, they called the police. They told the officer that the intruders had entered the home and they requested immediate assistance. Once again, a police officer assured them that help was on the way. The second call was received at 6.42. So right now you're already looking at 20 minutes after the first call was made. And it was recorded merely as investigate the trouble and it was never dispatched to any police officers. So shortly after this, Warren and Tally Fierro, who are still on the top floor, scared to death for good reason, um, they, call, they thought that the police might be in the house. I don't know if maybe they heard the men's voices or, or heard you know one of the men who hadn't spoken before or something, but they heard something that gave them reason to think, oh my goodness, the cops must really be here. So they called down to Miriam Douglas to see if she was all right. And uh, these two men heard the women upstairs call down and realized there were two extra women upstairs. So at that point, they go upstairs. They take all three women at knife point and they take them back to one of the men's apartment. For the next 14 hours, the women were raped, robbed, beaten, and it, it only gets worse from there. If you want the details, you can look them up yourself, but you get the gist of this for 14 hours. Finally, uh, I, I don't even know how really how the story ended. I don't know if they were able to escape or if the men just let them go or what happened um, or even where the four-year-old child was during all of this. But the women, all three of them, brought the following claims of negligence against the District of Columbia and the Metropolitan Police Department. And they said, you know, the dispatcher's failure to forward the 623 a.m. call with the proper degree of urgency because it was a code two instead of a code. They called it as a code two instead of a code one. Uh, The responding officer's failure to follow standard police investigative procedures like, hey, somebody broke down my back door and they don't even check the back door. And they didn't, you know, go nor the windows or anything like that to see if there was anybody inside. And the dispatcher's failure to dispatch the 642 a.m. call where, again, you clarify, hey, Somebody's in my house. I need you to get here immediately. And they just completely ignore it. So you've got this case of negligence from these women. And then you've got this other case of negligence from the man who was rear-ended and beaten up. And then the police officer wouldn't take a statement. The court ruled basically that the cops could not be held responsible for their negligence in these instances. The police have a duty to protect the public. And they have a duty to protect their jurisdiction in general. 
but they don't have any specific ties to any specific individual to keep that person safe. And kind of the logic behind this was that I think that they, they were afraid that people were going to start suing the police for every bad thing that ever happened in the city. And, you know, people were going to start arguing that, you know, because a police officer drives down the street, that he's responsible for anything that might be happening inside any of the houses that he's driving past. And, you know, to that point, yes, you can understand why somebody would think like that. And you could understand why, you know, obviously you wouldn't want your police department just to be constantly bombarded with those kind of complaints. But, again, when you look at this type of thing where someone called in and gave specific details about a burglary that arose to an assault, that arose to a rape, you would think they would be a little bit more cognitive of those types of complaints. But, and there have been several other cases like this that have come up along the way, and um, I'll, I'll link to a podcast here. Let me double-check and see what podcast that was. Uh, I'll link you in the show notes to a Liberty Weekly podcast where he explains this ruling and what happened and that kind of thing, and he named several, several, several other rulings that, excuse me, I said it again, several other opinions that courts ruled that the police don't have a duty to protect any individual person or any individual household or anything like that, that it's just a general thing. And there were a bunch of cases where, uh, you know, a lot of times a husband was abusive, so a woman got a restraining order for her and her kids to keep the husband away, and, you know, he would come back anyway, and he would beat them up, and um, people were killed and all kinds of stuff, and um, several instances along those lines. But the point of it was... We're not going to let the cops be held accountable for failing to uphold their duties because they are responsible for the general public and not for your safety. And in one of these cases, I don't know if it was Warren, I don't think it was Warren v. District. In one of these cases, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg even said, if this were a private security firm who had a contract to protect this house, this business, this neighborhood, whatever you hired them to do, you would have been completely right to hold them accountable for this type of negligence. But because it's the police and they just have a duty to the general public, you can't hold it against the police. And uh, side note, that kind of says a lot about the the social contract argument that people make a lot of times, that uh, it's good for you to pay your taxes or, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because you're getting a service in return that you wouldn't be getting otherwise. And that, sure, you may not like paying your taxes, but at least you have the police and they're going to protect you if you need them. And um, anytime anybody says anything you know, remotely negative about the police, they're always coming back at you like, well, you know, you better remember that when you call them and you need them. But when you look at what these court opinions say, it sounds like you can't even expect that to them. And just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, if you have your private security firm and you have a contracted agreement with them, and they don't uphold their end of the contract, you can go after them for breaking the deal. But in this social contract where essentially the state has a monopoly on law enforcement, if something like this happens and somebody breaks into your house and you call the cops and they don't show up and you get taken hostage and tortured for 14 hours, well, at least the general public is okay. As a side note, that's another reason why the social contract idea just doesn't hold water. But bringing that back around with this Scott Peterson thing, 
the Parkland resource officer. Yeah, the, these charges aren't going to stick. It's just for show. It's just to gain points with the voters. And this thing, this whole thing is going to be dropped. But again, at least you got to see the headlines that made everybody feel good and, and, and clap their hands a little bit. Next up, I got a couple of articles about the UK and their national healthcare system. Healthcare is obviously a, a, a big topic in a lot of our politics because in America it's very expensive and sometimes it's difficult for people to get the care that they need, especially if they are poor or they don't have insurance, that kind of thing. So what the UK and Canada and uh, a lot of these other places have done is they have made a, a socialized healthcare system. And what this does is obviously you're going to pay a little bit more taxes, but the idea is the government is going to take care of all the healthcare and they're going to streamline everything and they're going to take your tax money and apply it so that everyone can receive the care that you would hope you could get living in a, a civilized country in the 21st century. In theory, sounds great. Everybody's got what they need. Everybody's got coverage. You know, you are now insured for whatever you need. Go to the doctor and get taken care of. The problem is, going back to our principle of free markets, when you force things to happen in the field of economics, there are always going to be negative side effects. The, the market works very well. The, the, the idea of the concept of supply and demand, it really does apply to anything in the market. But it doesn't always happen as fast as people would like. It's not always avail as available as people would like. And the government's going to swoop in to save us here. Well, in the UK, got uh, an article here from a think tank called the Acton Institute, and it is called The Tax That Closed 3,600 Doctors' Offices. Uh, a UK tax policy intended to soak the rich has caused highly specialized physicians and surgeons to retire early depriving more than a million citizens of their services. A new report details the extent to which the progressive taxation has harmed British patients. So you are covered the national health care system. If you're a citizen of Britain, you can go wherever you need to, to see the doctor to make sure that that's paid for. And if you need treatment, you're going to get it paid for. The problem is they have massive doctor shortages. They have long wait times. And they have rationing of supplies and services because they, they can't supply it to everybody. Last year, the UK lost 441 general practitioners and had 11,576 unfilled vacancies for doctors as of last June. So they're, they're short 12,000 doctors. In the last six years, 585 surgical practices have closed down, affecting 1.9 million patients. 138 surgery facilities closed their doors up last year. Only 18 closed down in 2013. So you lost 18 of them in 2013. Now last year we're up to 138. So those things are just snowballing and just getting bigger and bigger. So what is causing this change? Well, an article from the Daily Mail says... The growing numbers of general practitioners and consultants are taking early retirement or cutting back on work to avoid hefty pension taxes, which make it uneconomic to continue practicing. Uh, retiring general practitioners, they create a domino effect by leaving the remaining colleagues with more work, who, at that point, get demoralized and quit. It's been compounded by the fact that more doctors are now working part-time. 
And the article even admits that the Daily Mail is a little bit more of a right-wing kind of paper. So they quote another more progressive outlet that says, uh, an investigation by the Financial Times found the widespread evidence of consultants refusing to take on extra work to clear patient backlogs, fearing extra pay would bust tax allowances on their pensions, triggering five-figure tax bills. There, There are many, many problems with this, but one of them is that Everybody wants to go after the rich because they have more money than us, so they should be paying for all of the things that we don't have. Unfortunately, rich people are just like you and me in the sense that they want to do as little work possible and make as much money as possible. And your employer wants you to do as much work possible for as little money as possible. And you have to find the agreement and find the middle ground that you can both agree on. But let's be honest, all of us right now could probably make more money if we were willing to take a harder, more grueling job. But all of us have a certain line where some of us might say, you know, I don't want to work 70, 80 hours a week. I'm perfectly happy working 40 and and I'll deal with the money that I have. And the doctors here are doing the same thing and they're finding that if they work harder and they work longer because, uh, you know, obviously a doctor is a very specialized skill and they do make good money and they went to school uh, to gain the ability to to earn that money. But when they're finding out that it's costing them more money to work extra, they're not going to work extra. And when they are hit with this insurmountable amount of patience that they just cannot keep up with, they're going to get frustrated and a lot of them are quitting because they don't feel like they can operate in that system. So what happens is when it comes to supply and demand, there are going to be a certain amount of doctor's offices available for the certain amount of people who are visiting the doctor every couple of months or whatever the normal amount of time is. But as people, as more people are needed, they will typically have time to build more offices and those numbers are going to slowly fluctuate just as the population changes and as as the health changes and all of that. But with uh, socialized healthcare, what happens is you, you basically snap your fingers, you pass a law and now you just say, everybody's covered. Everything is taken care of and everybody's paid for. Well, now you have an influx of millions and millions of people who previously didn't have health care, who previously weren't using health care, and now they're all showing up at the doors of the places that were only built to sustain the amount of people who were previously insured before you pass this into effect. So a lot of times people are waiting six months, a year just to get into the doctor It's not as bad for general practitioners just because there's more of them. So if you have a cold, it may not be quite as bad and it may not be that difficult because there are more doctors that can see you and treat you for a cold. But if you have a specific type of cancer, if you have a specific type of heart disease or anything like that where you're going to need to see a specialist, suddenly the pickings are pretty slim for what doctor you can see because there aren't many of them out there. And when other incoming smart people and rich people who would typically be going to med school, when they see that doctors can't make the kind of money that they made before and that the the job is not as enjoyable as it may have been before because you're getting bombarded with so many people that you can't handle it, they're just going to bow out and they're going to step back and they're just going to go do something else instead. Maybe they'll be an engineer or a lawyer or any of these other things that they would be you know, mentally and financially equipped to do. And now you're, you're shorting out on more doctors. And so, as it said again, the doctors are, more doctors are leaving early, which is causing the other doctors to want to leave early. And all of these things just snowball one on top of the other on top of the other. And 
And I haven't said it before on the podcast, but a lot of times I've always think of the movie John Q with Denzel Washington, where you know he's a poor guy and his kid needs treated, and he doesn't have the insurance to get his kid treated, so the hospital's not going to treat him. So he goes into the hospital with a gun and holds up the whole operating room and takes him hostage and makes them treat his kid. And, you know, it's kind of this sort of a feel-good story of a guy who does whatever it takes to, you know, go against an unjust system and does what he can to save his kid. And people talk about that kind of thing being a problem in America. But the thing is, in America, we're just held back by money. Um, if you go to the emergency room, they have to treat you. And, and yeah, you may get a horrible bill after you leave, but at least you know today you can get treatment. I've often said that in the UK, if you look, or in Canada, to this, this nationalized, socialized healthcare, you're going to have the same John Q movie, except this guy is going to be in there holding the place up because his kid has cancer and he's on a six-month or a 12-month wait list to even see an oncologist. Sure, it's great that these people don't have co-pays and that everything is already paid for because it's been taken care of through their taxes, but they aren't able to keep up with the demand. And so now you may not have to worry about the hospital bills, but you may not even get in to see a doctor. Uh, I had a friend who knows someone in Canada and she had back pain. So it, uh, she tried to make an appointment with her doctor. It took her six months to get in. The doctor said, uh, yeah, you need to see a specialist because I don't know how to help you. So she goes to the specialist six months later. It takes her to, to get to the specialist. And the specialist says, well, it's not bad enough for me to need to treat. You need to just go back to your general practitioner, your regular doctor, and have them prescribe you just pain medicine to deal with the pain. So another six months she has to wait before she gets back to her general practitioner. So she waited a year and a half to deal with back pain when many of us here in America can make a phone call and get in sometime this week. Uh, we're going to talk more about the things that we can do and the problems that we have with healthcare in our country and uh, a lot of the, the ways that we can kind of defend ourselves against this idea of socialized healthcare. But the most important thing I want you to realize is that you are taking away the money problems and you are trading it for time and treatment and, and shortage problems. We're going to spend more time talking about this another day, I'm sure, because there's there's plenty of things that we issues that we have in America where a more free market would allow more people to be served, but we don't have time to talk about that today. Uh, but I also, while we're here, uh, I want to read an article that my friend Mike sent me from the Catholic News Agency, which is related to this. UK court orders forced abortion for a disabled woman. Uh, in London, England, a British judge has authorized doctors to perform an abortion on a pregnant Catholic woman with developmental disabilities and a mood disorder, despite the objections of the woman's mother and the woman herself. The woman is 22 weeks pregnant. The judge says, I am acutely conscious of the fact that for the state to order a woman to have a termination where it appears she doesn't want to have one is an immense intrusion but I have to operate in her best interests, not on society's view of termination. The woman argues, again, that that's in the best interest of this woman. The woman is in her 20s. She cannot be publicly identified because she is under care from the state because she has these mental deficiencies. They say that she has the mental capacity of a grade school age child. She's Catholic. Her mother is Nigerian. They do say that with this woman being in the state, and the fact that she did get pregnant, um, they are investigating into whether or not this was a consensual thing that happened that caused her to get pregnant or, or what the deal was there. But 
even when we have our discussions on abortion, a lot of times the number one exception that even pro-lifers will give will say, well, if someone is raped and they don't want to keep the baby, we shouldn't make them keep their rapist's baby. But in this event, and again, I don't, I don't know whether or not she was assaulted in any way or not, but she wants to keep this baby. She wants to have it. And her mother is offering to help take care of it too. And, and they, the courts also argued that they're going to have to take care of this baby. They're going to have to put the baby into foster care and all this stuff because the woman's not fit to take care of it. But her mother is saying, I will raise my grandchild. I will raise the baby. Let her have the baby. But none of that matters. The courts have ruled what they have ruled. They have decided what is in this woman's best interest. And as as far as it appears, that's going to be the rule of law. And this woman is going to be forced to have an abortion of a child that she wants and that she wants to keep. You remember there's been two other cases in the UK over the past couple of years where there's been a, a newborn who has been very sick and the courts have decided just to, to pull the feeding tube and, and let the let the infant die because its quality of life isn't good enough and it's in too much pain. And even when the parents want to keep treating, uh, the doctors said no, the courts said no. Um, they offered to take the baby out of the country to be treated somewhere else. Donald Trump offered coverage for one of the babies, and the UK told them no, that they were not allowed to leave to seek treatment elsewhere because they had decided what was best for this child, and they have decided what is best for this mentally disabled woman. And on top of, of the money issues and on top of everybody having access to care and all of this stuff, one of the big problems with letting the state take over your health care is, is the same problem that you may have had when you were a teenager and you were fighting with your parents. And they would say, you know what? You're going to live in my house. You're going to operate by my rules. You're going to do the things that I tell you to do because I'm the one who's still taking care of you. I'm the one who's putting a roof over your head and I'm the one who's putting food on your table. So you're going to listen to me and you're going to do what I say because you are still under my care at this time. Now, fortunately, when you're a teenager, you get to wait a few years, you grow up and you move out and you do things the way that you want to do them. And you, you know, you sink or swim on your own. But with this nationalized health care, it's their house. It's their rules. They don't want to treat your baby for its illness because they think it's in the baby's best interest to pull the feeding tube and let it die. Guess what? That baby's going to die. They decide that it's in your best interest to have an abortion with a baby that you want to keep that's 22 weeks right now. They could pull that baby out of the womb and put it in an incubator and it would have a reasonable chance of living, of growing into a, a fully grown child and growing into an adult and having a full life and having children of its own. But again, it's my house, it's my rules. We're the ones paying for your health care. We're the ones who may have to pay to put this baby into foster care, even though the grandmother has offered to raise it on her own. So we are making the decision that it is in your best interest to lose your child. When you exchange your liberty, when you exchange your freedom for security and for a little bit of financial help from the state, you lose so much more than you gain. When they give this woman an abortion, do you think that she's going to be singing the praises of nationalized health care because she doesn't have a copay for it? Do you think she's going to be thrilled that she's not going to have to pay any medical bills from any of this treatment that she's received? Or do you think that she would do anything that she possibly could and that her mother 
the grandmother of this child, would do anything that she possibly could to keep this baby, even if it meant incurring massive medical bills, even if it meant having to fight through the the unpleasant situation of, of being a grandparent, raising a, a child who may have mental difficulties of their own. And the same thing can very well happen if we do it in this country. And it doesn't just apply to people who have mental deficiencies or, or special needs or anything like that. If you live too far out in the country and they decide that it's not in your best interest to live so far away from a hospital, they're, they're going to be able to tell you to move. If they don't like your diet, if they don't like the fact that maybe you like to smoke some cigarettes, maybe you like to drink some alcohol every now and then, if they don't like that, guess what? They're going to be able to tell you to stop because those things affect your health and your health is now their business. So the next time you hear somebody complaining about medical bills and medical debt, which, by the way, uh, a lot of those claims and complaints are grossly exaggerated. There are very few people who are declaring bankruptcy because of medical debt. But the next time you hear people complaining about the money issues, yes, our system is flawed. Our system is drastically and deeply flawed. But you need to take a moment to be thankful for the fact that you can call a doctor today or you can walk into the emergency room right now and you're going to see treatment. And if you get pregnant, if you have a baby and you, and you want to fight for that baby to survive, you have the option to do that here. When somebody else takes custody of you, they get to make the decisions. Finally, uh, one last thing. Since our last podcast, things just keep happening with Iran. And uh, I just wanted to give you a brief overview of, of what's going on and just a little bit of perspective of what's happening with that. So, I know that you heard about the tanker that was attacked, and it was, a, it was a Japanese tanker. The thing was, it was attacked while the leaders of Iran were meeting with the leader, the prime minister of Japan, which is not typically the time that you would try to attack anything. And there were also differing stories as to uh, whether or not it was a mine or whether it was a missile or what even hit the ship. And even the guys on the ship and the owner of the ship said they didn't think that it was Iran that did this. And we don't really know who did it. But it's important to note that, like I've said before, John Bolton uh, has wanted to go to war with Iran ever since he was serving in George Bush's administration. He really, really wants to do this, and he's accepted a lot of money from people over there. So we have this tanker attack, and unfortunately, a lot of people, even in the media, didn't buy it. And that's one of the good things about people being so skeptical and so hard on Donald Trump is that even when he's typically they're all for war, you know, Obama got to go into any war he wanted to and nobody even said a word. He was he was bombing countries that you'd never even heard of and nobody cared because, you know, he was a smooth talker and he was a likable guy. So this is going on with Iran and you can tell that they're really trying to set up a pretense for a war in Iran and, you know, with the rockets that were shot a few weeks ago and they're giving themselves kind of free reign to declare war whenever they want to. But there was a little bit of pushback over this tanker. And so shortly after, just a few days later, I think it was on Thursday, they shot one of our surveillance drones out of the sky. And uh, Iran said that it was in Iran's airspace. The U.S. says that it was in international airspace. I just did a quick Google search, and those things cruise at 60,000 feet, and they travel about 350 miles an hour. So... I don't know exactly how international borders work, but I would be guessing that it's probably pretty difficult with something that far above you and moving that quickly. It may be difficult to tell whose airspace it's in in the first place. So you, we may never even find out whether or not it was in Iran's airspace or not, but they're going to go back and forth about that. And we find out shortly afterward that Donald Trump 
agreed in retaliation that they were going to attack three different sites uh, in Iran as retaliation for that. And that 10 minutes before the mission was set to go, Donald Trump asked how many uh, civilian casualties there were going to be, and they told him it was going to kill about 150 people, and he decided that he didn't want to go through with that. And he released a statement later where he decided he said that, that uh, he didn't feel that that was a, a fair exchange, that they shot down one of our unmanned drones and we're going to kill at least 150 of their citizens. I have heard that Mike Pompeo and John Bolton and Gina Haspel were all in the room with Donald Trump, and they were all encouraging him to go forward and to bomb Iran in retaliation for that. And it's really hard to tell what is really going on there. We've, we're continuously talking on this podcast about how Donald Trump seems to have good instincts about war, and he seems to understand at his core that these these wars don't help anybody and that they are hurting us and that they are hurting other people and that they're spending a whole lot of extra money that we don't need to spend. But everyone that he surrounded himself with absolutely loves war. And these guys make a lot of money with that. These people get paid good, good money to keep the defense industry, to keep it pumping and to keep them selling arms to places like Saudi Arabia and to Israel. And, you know, they can sell these contracts. And then, of course, you've got to make more missiles. And if you use them, you've got to replace those bombs and missiles. And those companies pay guys like Mike, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, and, and they do it in the form of giving speeches. A lot of times um, John Bolton had recently got paid $40,000 to give a speech to one of those groups over there. And so there's a lot of money to be made in that, and there's a lot of power to be gained. If you could have control over a whole country and you get to tell them how they're going to live and what they're going to do, you know, maybe you would want to do the same thing too. I don't, I don't know that I would, but I guess you could see how it would be appealing to to be king if you wanted to be, I suppose. Um, there was another rumor that U.S. reached out to Iran through a third party and offered to make an agreement on the three buildings that they were going to bomb and that Iran would have fair warning to get all of their people out of there so that the buildings would be bombed, but there wouldn't be any casualties. And that way, the U.S. could kind of save face and look like they retaliated, but Iran would have been warned and wouldn't have lost any life, and that hopefully that wouldn't have escalated to any more war. Because if somebody gets killed, you're, you could very possibly be looking at war. But if, if you're just blowing expensive things up, it, it's not quite as catastrophic, I suppose. Uh, but hearing about that made me think of right after Donald Trump took office and he dropped all of those bombs on Syria and he, he bombed a Syrian airfield and they, they said it was one of the largest military attacks uh, maybe ever, I can't remember, but they talked about how big of an attack it was and there were almost no casualties. And it makes me wonder if the same thing happened in that instance, that maybe we warned them of what was going on so that we could bomb them and look like we were doing something, but they wouldn't suffer the casualties. But uh, either way, we're going to keep an eye on this, see how it unfolds. Um, you know, maybe Donald Trump really is fighting this internal battle and fighting within his cabinet, and he knows he doesn't want to go to war, but they're all telling him that we have to and that that's what we have to do and that that's what makes him look strong. It's also possible that by him ordering this attack and then pulling back at the last minute, he's trying to make himself look more compassionate and look more fair to everyone around him. And so he gets the benefit of looking tough but also looking like a caring person. But who knows? This is this is going to continue. Um, I've thought about doing an episode or two on Iran. My my episode on our civil war, on the civil war in Yemen, has still been the most downloaded episode out of everything I've done. I've got people coming in every single week and going back to that episode. That episode has been incredibly popular, 
And, um, you know, it, it, apparently you guys liked it. So if you want to hear more about Iran, I could probably do that. And I'm, I'm guessing it would take at least a full episode, maybe two or three. But we could go into the history of all of these tensions that we have with Iran and, and all of the history and where all of this stuff is coming from and why so many people in our country seem so hell-bent on getting into a war with them. Uh, for now, I am running out of time. If you want to reach out to me, you want to let me know something about the show, uh, you can catch me at twitter.com slash Garrett again. I'm at facebook.com Garrett again, Garrett again at pm.me. And I am also now on Instagram. I haven't uploaded anything yet, but if you want to get on there, I'm going to post some clips from the show. So if you want to share those with your friends, that's also Garrett again. And as always, Garrett again just has one R in Garrett. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Uh, people keep asking me about donating and, and helping the show out. I'm, I'm working on that right now. Uh, also looking into crypto a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't understand crypto very well. But if you want to hook me up, I would be happy to learn. If there are things that you want to talk about on the show, feel free to let me know. Uh, send me some articles. I've uh, got a few people sending me a lot of really cool stuff that we might want to talk about. And somebody else also asked if I would be willing to look at all of the Democratic candidates and kind of give a little bit of analysis of some of their pros and cons and some of the things about them. I will tell you, I'm not, elections aren't really my expertise. I don't understand districts and um, polling and all of that stuff. That just doesn't interest me as much. That's not my expertise. But if you would like to hear me break down just a, a list of these candidates and some of their pros and cons, and a lot of the what they're doing from a persuasion effort of what I think of their way that they're reaching out to people and what I think of their messaging and whether or not that's going to help them in the long run. If you're interested in that, let me know. Maybe we'll do a special episode. Um, maybe we'll do a special after we watch the Democratic debates because, you know, there are 20 of them and they're all trying to prove that they're the, the craziest person up there. But if you want to hear that, let me know. I'd definitely be interested in doing it if that's something that you're interested in hearing. As, of, as for now, I am out of time. I will talk to you again in two weeks for the next show, uh, releasing every other Monday right now. And if you're new, check out those backed episodes. We've got all kinds of stuff going back all the way through the test episodes that I published anyway, just as I was getting a feel for how I wanted this show to be. But again, thank you so much for listening. Until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here. Get out of here.